Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here on the east side, and thanks so much for joining us today. You may have noticed I had to do double duty this morning. We had actually really exciting news as we got together to record the service that the guy who plays piano for us normally, a guy named Rhett, who's become like one of our friends, um, he's at the hospital right now because he's about to become a dad, which is super exciting, very awesome. Um, so we, but we had to do like a last minute thing. So, um, but it's good to be here, and it's good to get to open up God's Word and to continue what Jenny started last week in the book of Acts. I am very excited about us spending this season as a church getting ready to launch into a manual thinking deeply about the birth of the church and what it means that um, God started this new story right after the resurrection. So um, I'll just read Acts 4, 5 through 13, and then pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. The next day, their rulers... Elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had made the prisoners, that is John and Peter, when they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what uh, power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we thank you so much for Easter and what a good um, what a relief it is to be in this season, Lord. After such a, such a hard year, after, after such a hard Lent, to be here in this extended time of feasting and celebration and remembrance and worship, um, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for the gift it is to, um, to get to spend this season, even scattered still as a church, celebrating. Thank you, Lord, for the words that come to us today from this text. Lord, I pray that they would stir something in us, that they would wake us up um, to what it means to be resurrected people in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So as uh, Ginny mentioned last week, we are in uh, this study of the book of Acts that the lectionary is leading us through, and we're calling it a new story because, um, as we saw even on Easter Sunday, what happens in the resurrection is God starts something brand new. It's like he takes us back to Genesis, he takes us back to the garden, and he begins from square one to build a new world. And the church is the way in which and through which he's building that world. Um, resurrection power is unleashed on the earth, It creates uh, new storylines, new historical trajectory for all things, new ultimate, um, what the Greeks would call telos or an ultimate end. 
It's like the world was spinning in a direction and then one day it just stopped and began spinning in a new direction and a whole new trajectory um, came into the story. The unmaking of devastation. Uh, as uh, Tolkien writes in The Lord of the Rings, the promise that one day all the sad things will become untrue. Now, this is what the first Christians believed happened because of Easter morning, because of the resurrection, because of the empty tomb of the crucified Jesus. They believed that this had happened. And it bears repeating, I think, every Easter for us to just remind ourselves that this is not at all what the early Christians were expecting to happen. The early Christians were all Jews. They knew their Bible. They knew how this thing was supposed to go down. This was going to be a conquest. This was going to be some sort of a, a, a military uh, operation. There was going to be um, victories over their oppressors. In fact, uh, we read in Acts chapter one, the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus has cr been crucified. He has risen from the dead and they're hanging out with the disciples. They're all together and he's about to be ascended into heaven and they're still asking him in Acts chapter one, Lord, now are we going to go to Jerusalem and kick the Romans out? So they still didn't understand that this was not going to be that kind of salvation. It was not going to be that kind of kingdom inauguration. It was going to actually begin with the crucifixion and continue through the martyrdom and sacrifice and crucifixions of Christians all the way up to the present age as the church continues to be persecuted around the world and to move out into the world with love and grace and truth. They were not expecting this to be the way it was, and yet they had seen and sat with and eaten food with the risen Jesus. They had smelled him. They had put their hands in the holes in his hands and his feet, and they had received the Holy Spirit, which had given them this new perspective, this new power, this new um, vision for their life. And they were utterly, totally changed, so much so that they went from fearful men hiding in a room, cowardly, afraid of the authorities, to people who boldly, all the way to their own deaths and martyrdom, spoke the truth that Jesus was alive. And so as we are in this Easter season, moving towards even our birth as Emmanuel, the church, we are following this story to remember that we today at Emmanuel are a continuation of this story, of this inbreaking, this fresh moment the new story that sweeps the world and continues to change the world today. And not just in the way that many ideas have changed the world, not just in the way that democracy has changed the world or that open market economics, free market economics has changed the world or egalitarianism has changed the world, but like something that is actually more subversive, but also larger and more holistic than that. Something that doesn't just speak to economics. It doesn't just speak to gender realities. It doesn't just speak to one form of injustice, but it speaks to all of it, to death, uh, to persecution, to suffering, to injustice, to economic inequality, something that touches the racial and the material, the spiritual, the psychological, the metaphysical, the emotional realities that all of us face, the destruction of death, the revelation of hope, the rescue of a world created new, and the universal exercise of justice. These are the things that the Bible, the writers of the New Testament said, oh, now that Jesus is risen, now that God has begun his new creation, this is what the world is rushing towards. It touches everything. Resurrection touches everything. It topples kingdoms and empires and brings new life out of dead things and promises a hope and a future to every one of you. This is what the resurrection brings to the world. God has literally taken all of the enemies, sin, evil, wickedness, death, and he's just done away with them. 
They're not ultimate anymore. So today, in today's text, we see how does the resurrection touch our understanding of power or the way that we engage with power in the world. And that may not be like totally clear on when I read it, but it is the subtext and the context of this whole exchange. And so we're going to talk today about power, which is actually our first point. This story is all about power. The disciples, Jenny mentioned this last week, but again, I'll just repeat it. John and Peter are doing what they were supposed to be doing. They go to the temple to pray. And on entering the temple or on their way, they meet a person in the portico who is lame, who's asking for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money to give you. But what I do have, I will give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And this man rises and walks. And we picked up last week where he's holding on to Peter. He's clinging to him. And immediately this causes quite a fuss. John and Peter are arrested. And now we pick up today where they're being brought before. It tells us the high priest and then all of the high priest kids. It's the whole high priestly family and the rulers and the elders, the Sanhedrin. It's this powerful body of religious rulers in Jerusalem who hold um, uh sway over all that happens in the city. And John and Peter have performed this incredible act with no explanation, and they're brought before the powerful people. And it says at the very end that they noticed that John and Peter were uneducated and ordinary people, and yet they had done something that the powerful people couldn't understand or make sense of. And so they arrest them. Typically, when power is threatened, um, the people in power, the powerful, do not respond with curiosity. They respond and say, well, how can I discredit this? How can I like, shrink this down so that it doesn't actually mean as much as it appears to mean? And that's what, exactly what they're doing here. How can I discredit the thing that they have done? And so they bring them before the trial um, to seek to, to show some hole in, in what's happened or to show them to be imposters. And they ask them a question. By what power or by what name did you do this thing? Which is the question that you would ask if you were trying to understand how did something that was unexplainable happen? Where did you get the power, the intrinsic power to be able to do this thing? We're not able to do this thing. How were you able to do it? And if you don't have the power intrinsic in yourself, then by what name are you doing these things? This idea doesn't necessarily translate as cleanly into our own day and age, although it still still has some sort of like resonance with our life. We, we, we know what it's like to like be able to say like, like, I'm speaking for the CEO right now and he, she wants this to happen. I'm speaking for the ambassador and she wants us to do these things. And so basically what they're saying is who gives you the authority to be able to say something incredible and have it come about? How do you have that kind of power um, in you? In that day and age, no greater name could be given than the name of Caesar. If you were able to say, I come in the name of the Caesar, I come in the name of Tiberius, I come in the name of Augustus, I come in the name of, of Nero, you had immediate full sway. You had total control. The name of Caesar was the greatest name. And they're saying, what is the name that you have that you're able to do something so unbelievable? For some of those in power, what the disciples say in response is heresy. That is, they say, well, we come in the name of Jesus and Jesus is the power of God. And that would have been heretical because in their mind, the power of God could not have been manifest in Jesus. Jesus was, um, he was an upstart. He was a lawbreaker. He was a rule bender. He was a crucified person. He couldn't be the power of God. For others, it wasn't heresy that they were bothered with. It was actually sedition. 
just by the disciples simply saying, Jesus is the power. They're saying, well, the, if you have the power to do that, it must be greater than the power that is available um, to us. So we're reading this. Jenny and I have got this uh, commentary by uh, um, Willie Jennings on the book of Acts, and it's been super uh, awesome and helpful for us in this. But one of the things he talks about in this is this idea that um, Christians have always from the very beginning had what he calls the criminal mind, which is kind of funny. But he says the reason we have the criminal mind is because we will always by nature, without even trying, um, before and be saying things that are going to cause a stir. Like there will always be a part of what is present um, uh, in, the, in the mind of a Christian that is going to um, go against the grain, not just of culture, but even sometimes of what is legal. Um, we see this, for example, like 50 years ago in the civil rights movement when Christians chose to deliberately break uh, Jim Crow laws in the name of justice, in the name of love for their neighbor, uh, in the name of, of, of equity and equality, that there is a criminality to the way Christians see the world because they're going to see it through a authority structure that is different than the one that is um, guiding and governing that world. And he writes in his commentary, Christians of the modern West have never really grasped our deep connection to the criminal mind, our mind. We should always understand ourselves as what Edward said called, uh, quote, secular critics who unrelentingly called into question the gods of this age. That is, the prevailing social, cultural, political, economic, and academic logic that supports or are at ease with the status quo of grotesque, this is amazing, of grotesquely differentiated wealth and poverty, uneven access to necessary resources for life and health, and forms of sublimely stubborn oppression masked inside of social <laughs> conventions. It's a huge sentence. Christians should always understand that this is part of our inheritance. John and Peter are just the next in the line. Jesus has already been the first. We have in this a power dynamic between the judged and the judges. The world is constructed by the judges. They get to live within the system that they've built. And yet John and Peter are saying there is a system greater than yours. There is a judge higher than you are. And that judge actually is the one in whose name we come. Um, George Orwell, the um, you know, sunny prophet, uh, he, he says, um, I found this quote this week. He says, an he says, an endless pressing, pressing, pressing on the nerve of power. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. There is a sense in which the world in which we are living in currently is a world in which a war is going on around power. Who gets to decide like what is good or right or just? Who gets to uh, in, in, uh, enact their version of the good life on the other side? And this currently is just taking place in the realm and sphere of politics, but it's been taking place place before that in, in other places, other communities, in the church, and still does take place in religious institutions. I want to talk for just what, with what's left of our time about what John and Peter model for us here. And what they model for us here is that part of being a Christian is being a person who's willing to speak truth to power. Now, I know that when I say that, speak truth to power, I immediately sound like, um, 
like a certain kind of a political person. I sound like a like I'm virtue signaling for the left probably is what is what you're thinking. But I think it's really important to understand what is going on here because in a single sentence um, John and Peter speak truth to both conservative religious people and to the imperial um, powers of Rome and they do it brilliantly. So there's this German historian named Ethelbert Stauffer, and he, uh, he has done all this work. He has a book called Jesus and the Caesars, but he says that one of the primary propaganda statements that was sort of circulating in the first century, because there was all these statements that would go out that people would know that would be uh, minted on coins or put on temples, and they were ways of presenting the Roman gospel, the Roman euangelion. And one of these Roman euangelions was this, Quote, salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. So that probably sounds familiar to you. It should, because I just read it to you, except that Peter takes that Roman euangelion and turns the thing on its head. He stands before the Jewish people and he says, first of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. He is the stone that the builders rejected. You, the builders, rejected by crucifying him. And he has become the chief cornerstone. So he speaks truth to the conservative right. And then in the same breath, he says, and also even the greater, larger imperial powers behind it. The establishment, all of these things also crumble at the feet of Jesus. There is actually a name greater than Augustus by which men not can be saved, but he says must be saved. It is the way in which a person is saved. The name of Jesus that is the place in which salvation is found and it is found no, um, nowhere else. There's a war from the very beginning in the early church between Christ and the Caesars between the Christians and Rome. It was already uh, there and, and in place between Jesus and the religious rulers of his day, but it just gets blown wide open, globalized in the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus is not simply here to topple down rigid conservative uh, structures. He is actually here to topple power structures that are um, oppressive, he is here to actually upend all things and to bring liberation and peace, as he says in Luke chapter four, the year of Jubilee to his people, the liberation of the captives and freedom for all. There's a part of being a Christian where you and I are called to take this cry up and to recognize that part of what it's gonna mean to be a Christian, part of what it means to be a, a resurrection person is to understand that there's an activism to our life now, a lot of times when we think about these things, about activism, we think about them through such narrow partisan lenses. We find it so easy to be activistic around certain issues, but those issues almost always fall cleanly on one side of a political aisle or the other. And I'm just here to tell you, if your activism always falls clearly red or blue, that's not Christianity. That's just being a pundit. That's just politics. What, what John and Peter show us here that is what the gospel comes, it comes and it actually divides all things. It creates a new uh, authority, a new word for the world. And that word is Jesus. That word is Jesus is the Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is the cornerstone, not the temple. Jesus is the one upon which everyone must look. And when they look, they find what they've been looking for all along. If I find myself 
only arguing for the things that are winning me cheers from one side. I am probably not actually speaking the whole Christian truth. And our world is full of this sort of disintegrated uh, sort of uh, virtue signaling on all sides. Like, for example, when, uh, when the NBA and Nike are willing to speak up for Black Lives Matters to sell sneakers or game tickets or advertising, but they're unwilling to speak against, clearly, the, the current systematic extinction of the Uyghur people under the, the, the rule of China, which is happening right now, because they get a lot of money from China. China's pretty important. It's very powerful. You don't want to upset China. When we do that, we just show that we're actually not, we're not for the things that Jesus is for. We're just for whatever is going to make us look good. We're for whatever is going to get us likes, whatever's going to earn profit for us. The Christian mind is criminal because it will always be troublesome. There's a prevailing notion in our world today that speaking truth against power is something that's spoken against establishments. But again, like which establishment? It's easy to take that and throw it all at like, uh, you know, well, the conservative establishment or, or big business. But big business isn't even clear. What does that even, what does that even mean? Who, who are we actually willing to speak truth to and who are we not willing to speak truth to? Is it the politicians who profit off of lobbyists supporting assault rifle ownership or the corporations who try to out-virtue signal one another around progressive issues? All for profit. I think the lesson in this text is that if we're going to follow in the way of Jesus, we're going to find ourselves sooner or later at friction with the powerful forces in our day and age. I think this is important for me to say. I think you need to understand, friends, that being a Christian is going to get harder in the years to come, not easier. That it's going to become clearer, those of us who are trying really hard to follow and walk in the way of Jesus, that there are areas of dissonance and incongruence that cannot be smoothed over. And that what it's going to call us to is being willing to stay so close to the teachings and the life and the way of Jesus and the power of his word in the scriptures that we're willing to stand for things that are going to put us at odds with people. I see my kids right now, they're, my girls especially, they're teenagers, and I just see the world that they're in. It is a completely different world than the one that I grew up in just 20 years ago. The things that they're having to wrestle through the assumptions, just the ontological assumptions of the day, how counter they are to the way of Jesus, how counter they are to what it means to be his disciple. There needs to be, in our imagination, this boldness, this um, resilience that comes with the resurrection that says, if God can conquer and crush all things that are our enemy, then I don't have to be afraid of anything. I don't have to be afraid of being canceled. I don't have to be afraid of being misunderstood. I don't have to be afraid of maybe not saying things perfectly. I can just seek to be close to the one who is the truth, who has the name that is above every name, the name by which all people must be saved because there is salvation found in no other name except Jesus. It's true that there's a lot of hostility in our world today. We all know it. Um, but it's also true that what the resurrection says is that where we're going is good. That even though things may be really unfriendly right now for all people, that where we're going is good. C.S. Lewis said it this way in one of his books, or I don't know, I, I just like the quote. He says, spring comes slowly down this way, 
But the thing is, we've turned the corner. That's what, that's what Easter tells us, that the world has turned the corner, that where we're going is actually good. It's a, it's a world that we want to be in. It's the thing that we get to participate in and practice for right now and build alongside one another. And what it means for you and me is to be people who constantly are willing to shirk the way that the world understands and defines power and to lay our power down and instead to do things in the name of the one who has power over all. And so Jesus, we recognize that this word comes to us as a hard word, something that isn't clear even what to do with it. I think the last thing that any of us need to be doing right now is rushing onto some social media platform and starting to blast people. I pray actually that instead what you would make us is people who have the wisdom and the gentleness to know how to speak in ways that are disarming. Lord, let us be disarming people. Even as we speak truth, let's do so with gentleness. Let our, let our speech be um, like seasoned with salt, as one of the apostles said. That we would be people who are able to speak true things, but do so in ways that actually love and build up and affirm and invite. God, save your people, we pray. We thank you for John and Peter. We thank you for their example, their boldness, and for the fact that they call us now into this new story. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, we'll see you in a few minutes. We'll be outside. Can't wait to have communion with you. Grace and peace to you, friends. You are loved.